0: This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio.
1: It's Triple R, and it's radiotherapy time. With me, panel beater, in the studio this morning, I'm joined by Dr Sharma. Good morning. Good morning.
0: We are quite the skeleton crew today, aren't we? We're the
1: skeleton crew. What with people's commitments here, there and everywhere and... Well, yeah, all sorts of things going on. It's just me and you, kid.
0: Let's do it. <laughs> We've
1: got a cracker of a show coming up. Oh, I haven't
0: seen you for a month, though. You're doing well? Uh, I'm doing well because I'm getting a lot of sympathy because I'm, uh, I'm quite sick at the moment. Yeah, yeah. It's, Early um, onset flu? Well, you know, I actually had influenza B a couple of weeks ago, which is already a bit nuts because, you know, I started... Yeah, to, right. I haven't stopped seeing flu in my patients all over Christmas, actually, so it's been, uh, wow. been a bit unlucky. But uh, cu- my current ailment, I mean, I probably should spare listening to the details at 10am on <laughs> Sunday. But uh, suffice it to say, I've just been kind of writhing around in pain and getting a lot of sympathy. I, I whine a lot Are, you, are you
1: good at the complaint?
0: I'm good. at Letting people I, know? Yeah, but I'm really good at just convincing people that it's, it's really bad. But the thing is, the more I've talked about it, especially to, to my female friends and colleagues, I've come to the slow realisation <laughs> that the symptoms that I've got the severity is no more, or not even equal to moderate menstrual cramps. <laughs> right, you know that thing that's that women been go the through for like, reference point. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that thing that women go through, you know, every month for about thirty years. Uh, and uh, and I've learned a lot about my pain tolerance and resilience. <laughs> right. That's what I've learned.
1: You've been uh, been told to get some perspective. Yeah,
0: just a little bit.
1: Yep, yeah. fair enough too, probably. Um, well, that's no good. I um, uh, was, well. Semester started this week. Uh-huh. Yep, so the teaching stresses started oh to emerge, and um, and I just noticed how quickly, just with the change in where your brain has to work and how it has to work, how that plays with stress and anxiety mm. in really particular ways. So that's been the story of my last well, week or so. People
0: all of a sudden, with the break being over, start to go indoors more and that becomes your environment. The weather's changed. It's coincided almost perfectly and we know all the effects that has. Well,
1: yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. But I think part of my experience of the last week or so is the different stress that exists among work colleagues and just that work environment. Um, Then the uh, um, the work stress that you absorb from the students coming in, and I'm dealing with a few first-year classes this year. So there's a whole kind of vibe in the room of
0: everybody really anxious and nervous. I was a wreck in first year. Yeah. I think I probably made it look like I was fine, but I was a total wreck. And just the the, the fact that a, a lecturer or an educator has... Is really quite conscious of that and 200 of these people at the same time. It's, uh, it's quite a responsibility.
1: We've uh, spoken on the show a little bit in the past about students and stress and anxiety and um, just by way of, you know, marginal update on that, I've noticed more, um, again, a, a general increase in the number of emails I get at the start of semester from student services who are letting me know... That they have a student who um, is recognised as needing some kind of learning support. And that learning support, of course, um, there's always students who might be hearing or sight impaired and and, and so on and so forth. But what's peculiar about these is the increase in students who are anxiety and depression based student support. Mm. You know, so um, it's pretty common for uh, undergraduate degrees to include things like group work or presentations or this sort of assessment right and students who are presenting with anxiety and depression they just don't want to go near that type of assessment of course um and we're seeing just a, just a, over the last five or six years I, the way I kind of think about it in my head is about 10 years ago um, when I first started doing this sort of work um, I reckon I was getting, maybe one or two per hundred students um, each semester. Um, I reckon before semester started on Monday, I'd already received about 15, 20. Wow. Yeah.
0: I mean, I think there's a research project in here somewhere for someone to tally up yeah the, uh, the number of emails and, uh, and how they've increased over the years. You know, of course you could argue this... Might be a good thing in that this level of anxiety is always pre-existing, and now we're just seeing more awareness, acceptance, and people willing to come forward. But I suspect, probably, what you suspect too, things are changing. Uh, there's a certain optimism that is kind of leaking out. I think of our of our young people, and hmm. um, you know, very justifiably. Uh, I, I see a lot of a lot of university students, and it's it's scary. Even within the second year, their stresses are. Things yep. like what kind of will I get a job afterwards? This is just we, they should not have to have to deal with this in, in in second year, and it's 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 really onerous. The um
1: the, the big Uval um, um, um oh his name's uh, going to escape me right now.
0: well Hmm. You. Did you say Yuval? Yeah, Yuval Noah. uh, uh, Yeah,
1: yeah, thank you. Um, He he claims that we can put into a nutshell three big global issues. Um, uh, Nuclear proliferation as far as war and conflict is concerned, climate change and artificial intelligence. Um, Now, our young people, climate change is just going to have such a big impact on decision making policy making in their lives in terms of like how the world works but ai when it comes to things like job prospects and job futures you know they're being told every day in one way or another how rapidly the workforce is changing so how are they making plans for for thinking about work life you know there's all sorts of jobs that just aren't going to exist and all sorts of jobs that we don't know yet will exist. But that's a different type of uh, insecurity that perhaps hasn't been around in the same way before.
0: Well, I think that's one of the things we have to explore as a society is what are the modes of well-being that an individual can have that is not completely dependent on uh, doing some kind of work uh, and also you know, a form of work that isn't particularly difficult and, and arduous the exact kind of things that we want ai to actually take over yeah. you know, we, we do we don't want people kind of working in the coal mines and ideally you know, the the responsibilities that individuals take on are you know are less and less stressful because that's the entire point of a kind of a machine uh and that's it's one of those things we're going to have to negotiate as a society in and, and culture
1: yeah yeah interesting times and in a way that kind of AI leads us to uh, introducing our attention for the rest of the hour which is going to be on the commodification of healthcare, consumerism and the like. Um, So we're going to cover a whole lot of ground here. We're going to do a bit of definitional work about what, what consumerism is in healthcare services, what commodification of healthcare means. Um, we're going to talk about you know what uh, it means for patient and uh, service provider relationships. Are patients now clients or customers? Um, we'll look at things like um, how participatory medicine is starting to play a role in the way that um, community level services are delivered. Um, we'll try and address uh, the sorts of issues that emerge in a in a consumerist health environment where what is fact and what is so-called fake news when it comes to health advice, um, and where are people sourcing their advice on the the information about their health? Um but also, where are they getting information about um, how to determine the quality of health services so um, technologies allowed for websites to emerge where people can rate their doctor and, and hospitals and clinics and things like this um we might we'll, we will be looking at um whether we think that this uh consumerism in healthcare is supply-driven. Is this coming about because patients are asking for it? They want to be treated differently and understood differently? Or um, is it... Um, uh, sorry, uh, that would be demand-driven. Or <laughs> <laughs> supply-driven. Is it somehow benefiting um, uh, health insurance companies, uh, service providers, hospitals, um, policymakers, makers, et cetera, et cetera? Or is it a combination of both? Um, it's all couched in the idealism that if we get the relationship between the patient and the service correct, we're probably going to have a good healthcare system. But um, it reveals a whole lot of debates. So that's what we've got ahead uh, for, the, um, for the next hour.
0: You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR FM in Melbourne, Australia.
1: Welcome back to Radio Therapy. It's me panel beta with Dr Sharma and uh, we're embarking on a bit of attention to consumerism as it relates to health services and the commodification of health and that sort of thing but to get us get us there into the meaty bit let's just um, check in with a few definitions of things Dr Sharma Um, so when we're talking about consumerism in in healthcare what comes to mind for you
0: well, what comes to mind for me is that yeah, healthcare is basically about ultimately supplying people with health and consumerism is almost this method that we employ to, so I guess, you know, patients uh, can get the right treatment at the right cost off their choosing that's convenient for them that uh that they have you know kind of knowledge of and uh, and have the kind of the right to, to choose so it's a method by which we try to match up what is being provided by healthcare providers doctors or hospitals or pharmacists or pharma companies with the people who need those things mm-hmm. which, are, which are patients it's, it's a mechanism to, to make the two kind of fit and match. But what what's the consumerist
1: bit of that? Like that's in one fashion or another has always been the case in healthcare, right? Or what distinction are you making?
0: It it has, in that and I think you mentioned this to me earlier, how the concept of patients as consumers, it feels like a really modern thing, but it's been referenced as early as nineteen thirties. But to to really understand what it means for patients to be consumers or consumerism in healthcare, you have to kind of almost understand where healthcare came from so I think back in the uh, let's say the 30s or 40s the the model of healthcare was what we would regard now as a very paternalistic model Mm. the idea being you have a problem as a patient a set of symptoms and concerns you go to the doctor they are the expert they will tell you what's wrong and they will tell you what is the right thing to do and then you will do it yeah that's pretty much it and this had been the way for a long while in some parts of the world it still absolutely is but then gradually there was this social shift occurring towards the patient going from a doctor-centered thing to a kind of patient-centered care things like well hang on what if the patient doesn't want this treatment what if the patient doesn't want to know Mm. this test or this diagnosis what if they want to know more hey you know, we've realised actually that we feel like the doctors kind of talk down to us a lot. Um, they don't really hold eye contact with us. They can be quite bossy. And so there was this, I think, very well justified, you know, kind of swing towards well considering things from the patient's perspective. But to bring you back to to very long winded answer to what you were asking, to, in terms of what consumer centred or uh, care really is is all about is. The concept that now the patient has some sense of power, Mm -hmm. an economic power, a choice power that allows them some freedom to exercise uh, which treatments they go for, which direction their healthcare kind of goes in and the healthcare providers adapting to that and being incentivized to uh, to track along with what patients want, which was, if you go back to paternalism, was not always the case. That was really all about this is what the doctor thinks it's best. Now it's a very mm. much more, well, what does the patient want? And that being a given some power.
1: There's that um, old phrase, uh, well-worn in retail or sales. Yep. Uh, the consumer's always right. The customer's, the customer's always right. right yeah. Is it is it transposable, oh transferable to healthcare?
0: Let me tell you how wrong that is. Uh <laughs> let, let, let alone, not only, so this is going to sound a, a bit cocky until you hear the second part of the statement, not only is the patient, like, rarely right, the doctor is more often than not. Not right. <laughs> I mean, think, within my short lifespan as a, as a doctor, we've gone from, you know, the, the cure for appendicitis can only be surgery, take it out. I mean, if I wrote anything different to that in an exam, I would have failed to... Now, very good research showing you can just kind of leave it alone, give some appendicitis and, you know, delay your treatment off it by yeah, for right. a while. Like, we as as doctors in theory so highly educated we learn have to learn to be so humble about the things we know it's like we are right at the kind of edge of everything there is possible to know about healthcare so in terms of who's right or wrong you know, this that paradigm just does not fit i think
1: yeah yeah um and there's a we'll get into some of the nuts and bolts of that uh, as the discussion unfolds but let, let's um Shift our thinking to this this ecosystem, for want of a better word, or industry, even, and think about what it contains. The things that uh, come to my mind, it includes things like uh, private health cover, um, the private health services, um, mega clinics, you know, community mega clinics. It includes things like uh, the wellness industry. Absolutely, yeah. yes. And um, of course, you can't have consumerism without advertising
0: absolutely
1: let's work backwards on those things advertising i remember uh an ad uh for toothpaste i can't remember i probably can't date it exactly but maybe early 90s late 80s and it was a dentist who was brushing his teeth with his back to the camera and, oh yeah and i think it, it opens up with something like um this is Phil, it's he's Rob. a... Rob de- It was, this Rob, Rob. The dentist. <laughs> it was yes. Rob the dentist. This is Rob. Uh, he's a dentist, so we can't show you his face on telly. And, and, of course, being the kid at the time, why? And, you know, the explanation to me was, you know, uh, medical profession professionals can't advertise. Yeah. Come a long way.
0: We have come a very, very long way. Um, it, it's quite funny how we often don't... Uh, aren't aware of how heavily we are advertised in Australia in terms of medical service and products... Very largely because it's actually reasonably well regulated here, but in other parts of the world, let's take you know America, the obvious example. Uh, it is an industry that has just grown and grown and grown. Now in Australia, the restriction is we can't prescribe prescription medications, but a lot of things fit into the ambit of healthcare products. So uh, you know everything from say something like Reiki to vitamins, mm. which is. Huge, one of the most mm. profitable uh, health, uh, industries, really, uh, to to baby formula.
1: Uh, Even things like labelling on food now has got some kind of relationship to what is understood as health, you know, so whether that be a zero carb or no sugar or no added sugar or low salt or gluten-free, da-da-da-da-da. Yeah. Um, they are used as much as information for the consumer as they are as a sales pitch
0: totally i mean if we think about you know the classic marketing 101 thing of the maslow's hierarchy of needs you know the first thing you want is kind of safety and physical protection if you can make your product address the bottom base of that pyramid uh, then you you are winning you know i i practice at a clinic that i'm gonna you know after i leave here i'm gonna go go to there's a big billboard there for a uh, for a baby formula and it has got one of the most I mean, I don't know, Machiavellian or just (laughs) genius taglines ever. And it says, believe in better. So I want you to just kind of unpack that for a moment. Like there's lots of different baby formulas out there. They're they're all different. I can tell you right now, there's probably really not one that's better than another. But they want you to forget that concept. They want you to believe there is a better. um, Because why wouldn't you want to do the best thing for your child's health? Uh. Even though there's probably no proof, it doesn't really make a difference. Yeah. If, if you can make things fit into that ambit of healthcare, uh, you know you are winning.
1: Absolutely. I mean, and I think um, I, I'm guessing a lot of us, when we go just to a supermarket aisle to buy some ibuprofen, you know, do we buy the generic or do we buy any one of the seven or eight uh, commercial options? And, and how much time do we spend going, am I getting ripped off if I buy one of the branded or if I just buy the... Is it black and yellow from IGA or something?
0: It is brutal, isn't it? So there's, you know, in terms of brand names, there's Nurofen, there's Advil, there's Hedofen, and then there's the difficult-to-pronounce ibuprofen. (laughs) And, uh, you know, it was always taught in medical schools to to, to say the pharmacological, you know, kind of molecule name rather than the, the brand name. And yet in practice, I have to say, at least... Thirty percent of the time of consultations, I just kind of have to give in and say nerf and just it's right. so easy to kind of communicate, and yeah, I'll try to follow that up with. But you can buy the the cheap one, you know, the, it it means nothing. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm kind of powerless almost in that situation. It's uh, it's very effective. Yeah, the branding's there,
1: um, and the and. We've sort of they touched on the, the wellness industry, but that's including things like um, uh, self help, which I'm dealing with in another a couple of other shows. Um, but it's dealing with exercise and gyms and how they communicate a relationship to health and well being. Um, it's the vitamins, you know, uh, and tea. Is, is something that's popping up and apple cider vinegar is all the rage.
0: The, the ingenious thing that uh, the wellness industry did is like they kind of flipped the pharma conspiracy on its head. So the pharma conspiracy always being that you know ph- pharmaceutical companies they want to make things that don't actually make you better because if you're sick you'll need their product. The wellness industry has almost gone, let's take otherwise well people and tell them that they can be better even if they may not be able to. And and convince him that that is a need. So yep. set, set the benchmark for being okay, very high with slim tanned legs and you know kind of pastel coloured smoothies. This is the aesthetic to to aspire to.
1: Yep, yep. And a key tenet of consumerism and consumerism theory is that it nothing has value unless it can be bought and sold, right? So a free walk in the park. Um, we know science has never equivocated on this, that going for a walk in the park is good for you. Um, But if you can pay for something that supposedly will give you the same benefit as you did go for that 30-minute walk, stroll out in the sunshine and and nature, um, that because you're paying for it, it somehow is more meaningful or more valued.
0: And this is a cultural concept almost, maybe maybe a psychological one as well, about scarcity, um, which is... Really, at the heart of what economics is really all about, whether it's uh, something is scarce in reality or it's perceived, we attach value to that, and we will give more and more to get the scarcer things, as long as we feel there's there's some need for them. Hmm. What about mega clinics? We see them around the place
1: increasingly. You know, um, once upon a time and not too long ago, we did kind of all have a family doctor, and and I guess many of us still do, and. and um, But we also move around a lot, don't we? So um, it may be well into you know for for people who are moving through their twenties and they're they're moving around for you know as they're trying to settle their career uh, into their thirties might be before they start to see a doctor more than once. Um, And mega clinics are these catch-all for everybody in the neighbourhood.
0: That's right, and uh, so I mean, I'm in that population, both as a doctor and a patient, just yeah. you know, kind of forever flitting from here to there, no actual plan. Uh, and and I, certainly a lot of my encounters in the CBD are patients who will see me for one or two visits, and then they're fine. Never see and them they, again. You know, and that that that's mostly okay. You should be healthy. Um, and so the idea for a lot of these kind of super clinics is this kind of packaged product of, it's all here, everything you need. Is here the radiology is here the pharmacy is here yeah. the whatever you may really not need those things mm. uh, but of course you're going to go to the place that you know s- seems like it's kind of got the best product I mean this is actually something the government uh, uh, really tried to push with the super clinics this is actually something they funded initially lots of GPs specialists there pharmacies and the theory was this will lead to better delivery of healthcare. Or better health outcomes, uh, which is the eventual aim. Um, the proof is that really made no difference at all. But right. what a powerful marketing tool.
1: Yeah, yeah. And then just lastly on that list of things that make up this, you know, industry, um, is the distinction that that we we operate in an environment where there's public and private services, and it opens up the question: is if it was, would there be a difference if there was all one or the other? Does having both run simultaneously help the respective other? Um, and what does it mean for you know, and when we say would it be better, are we talking about quality or are we talking about cost? and if we're talking about cost, is it cost to the taxpayer or cost to the individual patient?
0: Yeah, when it comes to that distinction between private and public healthcare and the choice that patients I think have to make, I think it's a really good example of how illusory. Uh, it really is. The benefits are absolutely not uh, what what I think patients would perceive them to be. I think there are some benefits. You know, if you go to private emergency, you're probably not going to have to wait as long. That's an okay thing, if that's yeah. what you want. That is yep. totally reasonable. The concept that you will get better healthcare in a private hospital is a really flawed one. I'll go as so far as to say that. I mean, if I had something majorly, this is an opinion, of course. If I had something like a multi-system problem. Uh, I would much rather be in a public hospital uh, than a private hospital. Having you know, kind of worked in right. in, in in both, uh, I do not think that is the view that a lot of people who have private health insurance would hold. And this really comes down to this key problem when it comes to healthcare in the in the, in the kind of consumer space is patients often do not have what we call perfect information uh, about the services and products they're buying. So if we want the things to healthcare to work in a in uh, in a, in a uh, in a market, one of the assumptions of a efficient and fair market is that there is the consumers have perfect information. Uh, patients cannot have perfect information; they don't, and I, will, I would argue it's literally impossible for them to have yeah. perfect information. Yeah. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio Three RR in Melbourne, Australia.
1: Welcome back to. Radiotherapy, Triple R, with Dr. Sharma and myself, panel beta and we're talking all things consumerism in health services um, and the commodification of health. Um, let's move on to uh, looking at some of the um, uh, some of the issues arising, uh, Dr. Sharma. We, you know, and some you know in doing so, looking at uh, some of the features. We've touched on one aspect uh, that might be driving. Um, so-called uh patient-centered uh health um which may then cause us to think of patients as consumers and clients and that's in shared decision making um do you want to just uh to, to kick us into that discussion tell us about a typical consult um and how a, a patient you might be talking to for the first time um gets engaged with you in the um in the discussion of their health
0: so uh uh, I think as I've said several times on here, I practice in uh, in a part of Melbourne where people are very health literate and I'm already kind of aware of those prizes that people kind of come in with. Uh, so they usually come in to me with a set of symptoms. Uh, just by the way they talk, I can already kind of gauge how much they are conscious of their own health. And their kind of understanding of certain kind of health uh, health topics, biology, etc., and perhaps if they've googled uh, their symptoms, which is not absolutely not a bad thing at all, like web MD and that kind of thing. Totally, yeah, and and I think many people. You know, I'm lucky enough to, to work in an area where people are just have just good judgment. I mean, they've come to me for an opinion, so you know they're, they're clearly not committed to 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 anything you know too firmly. Um, and so then what normally happens is I will take a history, I'll ask about the symptoms from a perspective of making a diagnosis, but also trying to gauge what are this person's priorities? What is their agenda? Right. Do they want to know is this going to kill me or not? Do they want relief <laughs> from symptoms? Do they want to know, the, you know, like the uh, the cause, you know, or do they just want the, the deeper problem, you know, the underlying pathology kind of fixed? And then I will ask questions about that what is it that they really kind of came in for which is really interesting Mm. that is not necessarily what paternalistic medicine is about um this is really about well what is your agenda and then often i'll have my agenda as well and usually they will coincide so for example someone might come in for relief of a symptom that they think is quite mild because it's just kind of getting in their way their agenda is i want the symptom gone so i can go to the wedding on the weekend drinking on the weekend whatever my agenda might be i don't really <laughs> mind your symptoms i'm very concerned about the risk factors that are leading up to this symptom the the, uh, the everything else and so now we have got a bit of a clash of agenda and then comes time to go okay well here's what i think here's what you think here are the priorities given what i think what do you want to do hmm. what are your priorities What are are you going to reevaluate your agenda? And I let that drive itself out. This is not necessarily how all doctors practice. This is really important to consider. When I was applying for medicine, we had to do a test called the UMAT, the Undergraduate Medical Admission Test. It's still there, and there was a section, uh, section two of it is called Interpersonal Skills, given (laughs) scenarios between doctors and patients and conversations, and then you are asked to put down what is the right thing for the doctor to do. Now, I don't say this with any kind of bragging, you know, because I basically smashed that, uh, that section of the exam <laughs> expect no less from your
1: doctor no, no 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 no.
0: well, well. It's, I, by going completely against my instincts panel leader uh-huh. because I was told by someone as a doctor in this day and age you should only do three things which is listen um, offer patients options and then offer support that's all this is not paternalistic medicine. This is this new model of medicine we have. You share information with the patient. You are you 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 give them options. You guide them through decisions. You don't tell them what they what should be done.
1: Yeah, I, I reckon this is one area where. So thinking of myself as the patient in this scenario, um, this is an area where I wrestle with a lot. Like I. I conceptually get the idea that, um, yep, it's my life, it's my health and ultimately it's my decision about what I do. But I also am perhaps perhaps overly self-conscious that I'm not the expert, right? So um, I'll say to, uh, you know, the the doctor might say, well, here are your options. And I'll go, what would you do in my situation? And then the response is, but I'm not you. And, and I find it kind of frustrating and and because I'm also of a c- cynical bent, <laughs> I kind of uh, wonder um, whether this is somehow couched in kind of legal protection. So ultimately the uh, client, the patient, um, it can be recorded that they ultimately made the decision to go with this prescription or that prescription and or this um, surgery rather than that surgery or no surgery. Um, and whether that's some kind of um, safety net being applied by the health service provider.
0: I think it is. Uh, yeah. I think that's a huge reason why. I think there's you know, ideological reasons why doctors feel like that too. But yeah, when you say that, it's quite interesting. Uh, my instinct's always to to, to to kind of want to make the decision as a patient and yet I can think of at least a couple of times in my life where things were just better and easier and I felt so much more relieved. I actually handed over control yeah. to the expert. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, and
1: well this is the definition of expert isn't it right so you've given a um a uh, conditional thumbs up on the value of uh, people informing informing themselves becoming um uh, health literate do you experience patients coming in where they said oh i've checked online and this is what this is the prescription i want you know and they'll name the medicine they'll name the dosage and they'll
0: that that does happen for sure, and uh, it, there's usually a big shift in the tone of the conversation. Now, the often the easier thing to do is to go, well, there's really no harm that's going to come from what this patient's asking, and it's probably and it's probably not going to benefit them much. But hey, uh, if I if I give this out to them, if I give this script out to them they will like me uh, and they will not just like me, they're likely to kind of come back. Mm-hmm. And that is, for, you know, in theory for me would be a financial incentive. It also might be like a bit more altruistic, which is, well, I'll, I'll let it excite this one time, but hopefully once we establish a relationship, they can begin to trust me and I will be able to kind of guide and nudge them more. Yeah. So it, it, it is tricky like that so the other aspect
1: of you know cynicism that i bring to my relationship with yeah. <laughs> medical practice and and a whole lot of other yeah, yeah, <laughs> professions i'll say yeah. um is transparency mm. how do you approach the the matter of what what information to
0: withhold oh you I mean might, you you've got asking, time pressures oh man right? you're not asking all the tough questions i mean it's that is this is one of those things which is totally in conflict with the values i think we were taught in medical school this is the problem right like we have this concept of shared decision making and patient autonomy and when you read what these things are about on paper like who could argue against them and yet when you look at what they look like in practice it's just not right i mean one of the side effects i mean you know, I'm going to catch this by saying i f- totally for the flu vaccine. I, I absolutely get it. You know, it's w- absolutely worthwhile for most people to get. One of the side effects is you can get something called Guillain-Barre syndrome, this uh, this nerve paralysis that can occur. It's very rare. I'd be... I, I d- doubt there's a doctor in Melbourne who ever mentions that to their patients because there and there's a degree of paternalism in that. Right. Do I give you all the information? I mean, is that fair to kind of tell a patient who maybe does not have a good instinctual understanding of what statistics and rarity and this and that are like to, to kind of give them all of this. It sounds like it's the, the fair thing to do on paper, providing patients with all the information. In reality, it can actually be quite an unfair thing to do. Yeah, right. So I struggle with this too. I,
1: it occurs to me that one of the, um, the areas that we certainly read about in, in news coverage and so on is around um, diagnosis of prostate cancer in oh men right? So there's sufficient news coverage out there that a lot of blokes will have at least read something about it and would have maybe some sense of the debate being between how early is too early to to prognosticate um, about treatment. Um there must be some temptation, you used the word agenda uh, before, you know, there must be some temptation from the health service provider to form their own view on that, and then that influences about what they will tell the patient on an examination.
0: I think so, and I have to be very careful with my words here in that th- many doctors or people in the medical community have a concern that the doctors who are incentivized to do the investigating through biopsies of prostates have a bias towards, testing and perhaps over-testing of prostates. Uh, So this is, you know, in theory, just kind of buying into the... uh the 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 medical conspiracy theorists playbook but there's probably no harm in acknowledging that we all will have a bias one way or another um and kind of being conscious of that uh it's you know it does kind of load that consultation the patient has with the doctor one of the nice things i think about the model of general practice in australia is that whether or not you choose to you know get the invasive biopsy or not you know it's the, the gp's helping you make the decision we haven't got a got a horse in the race you can do whichever you like. So mm. I don't make any more or less money whether you get the yeah, testing right. or not, yep. which I think is a really important separation of power yep. almost, so to speak.
1: Yep. And there's that distinction with pharmacists and, and, and so on and so forth as well, right? So, exactly, yeah. yeah.
0: I, I Triple th- yeah. R, not for everyone, for anyone.
1: Welcome back to Radiotherapy on Triple R. We're just in the last few minutes of... The show where we've been covering all things consumerism in health services, and uh, just in these last few minutes that we've got together before Einstein a go go get in your ears, let's try and sum it up with the good and bad. Where can we go with? Is it in total a good thing that uh, patients have started, you know, claiming um, their um, uh, claiming the attention that they they mm. they want from uh, health services? Um, Has that on balance ended up being a good thing or not? What's your gut reaction, Dr Sharma?
0: My gut reaction is that consumerism in healthcare has actually been quite a valid reaction to a lot of the problems of old-school paternalism. The problem is that patients have no idea the harms uh, that come Completely unintended consequences that uh, we are all bearing the the we're all bearing out because of this consumerism. So it's there probably is a better a model that we can move towards, but the first problems and challenges is going to be making patients aware that just because you want things and you're getting them does actually not mean that's what's best for you.
1: Yeah, yeah, and that goes back to that conundrum about um, understanding what an expert or who the expert is in this um scenario and as you've (laughs) i don't know is it reassurance to know that um that doctors are still doing a little bit of their own um you know not guesswork but they're still trying to navigate the weeds uh in the information that they're dealing with
0: well i think it can bring everyone to a common shared understanding that just the best and brightest are doing everything they can to find some sort of biological objective truths all the time so this is more of a reason for yes for us to collaborate and I think that's a really important thing but also just to, to do give that kind of importance and edge to, to expertise, which I think is really important. I mean, you said yourself, you're quite a cynical yeah. patient. Oh, yeah, in very. In many ways. You could Maybe you can share, like, any experiences where you have you think you've benefited <laughs> or not from consumerism. Oh, I had an early trauma,
1: I'll share with you. Oh, go for it. Yeah, so I broke my leg at... Uh, I was 11, 10 or 11, and I broke it in a couple of places. And it was just a good young boys break the leg, riding a bike too fast down a hill, crash, bang. Off we go to... Um, Casualty. I go in and I get my um, leg put into plaster mm-hmm. um, and go home for the evening. There was no overnight issue or anything like that. Um, go home and I was in agony, absolute pain, and um, um, and I was letting that be known to my folks. And they're going, "Of course it hurts. You've just broken your leg. It'll be okay. It's going to get better, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. Um, but I didn't let up sufficient to, uh, sufficiently so that I got taken back. It turned out that the doctor who had put my cast on had set it with the break. Oh,
0: my God. <laughs>
1: now, now that, that trauma isn't necessarily explained by consumerism in health services, but it probably does have some influence on just you know the, those formative years.
0: Well, I mean, it might, in a way, in that uh, if that was your one, your one option, but you know, you saw big billboard for best orthopedic surgeon right. in Melbourne has has always set all his or her fractures right. Come see us; we'll charge you triple the price. Suddenly, now you know we're in a marketplace and. And I think probably a lot of people would be swayed by that. The question is, would that actually lead to a different outcome? And to be honest, I'm still quite agnostic about that. I think there are many uh, positives that can come from healthcare being in a marketplace. But I'm just repeatedly seeing kind of a lot of failures. Well, one
1: aspect of the marketplace in healthcare is how many... um trained and very well trained uh, surgeons are moving into for example something like um, plastic surgery instead of corrective surgery or something like that where the skill sets are transferable and, this um, is simply ma- because plastic surgery earns so much more money.
0: Well this is what the marketplace does doesn't it? it tells you what it values and what it values most and if the incentives lie along market lines that's exactly where service providers are going to go. This is, you kind of have to remove morality from the situations you know like we have to acknowledge that human beings risk respond to incentives and this is just one of the main reasons why I think healthcare in a marketplace situation will always lead to market failure. It's just not a commodity to be tr- uh, traded. might have benefits but I think we can eventually move to it as a better model. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au